After the sun has set, there comes a time of quiet predation. This is a time to hunt for food, to find sleep, to engage in recreation and reflect on the day. But in the dark, human senses are diminished and vulnerability is heightened. Shadows loom inexplicably large and tree branches become nightmares. Yet, humans have a fascination almost an obsession with the maliciousness of the dark. The dark of night, the darkness of space, the blackness of death, the infinity of black holes, and the darkness of human nature. The more that darkness absorbs our sense of security, the more excited we become. A lack of light breeds curiosity and fear. In today's episode, we head into endless fathoms of darkness, where things go bump, and where tales of deceit, sin, and accusations of witchcraft lurk in the night. We join Dara and Jacob as they talk with Dr. Eric Christensen at the University of Kentucky about the dark spaces between good and evil. I'm Eric Christensen. I'm an associate professor in the Department of History, and, and I teach in the areas of methods for undergraduates, and I do courses on uh, global epidemics and pandemics and history of American health care. We are doing this episode about the history of darkness, and as part of that, we kind of want to talk about some, some dark times, some dark magic dark moments, some witchcraft, exciting things in Salem. So, mm. you were talking a little bit about um, the Salem witch trials and how that came about, the medical part of it, which is very fascinating. And so we're kind of wanting to pick up there. Long story short wants to talk to you because we want to know what the heck was going on <laughs> with these, what was going on in Salem? Well, it, it, that's still a good question because there still are some unknowns in terms of how everything actually fell into place. And we think of the trials, well, a trial only takes place after you got problems, okay? So what actually unfolds? And, and there, there are a number of, of different interpretations of how, how it actually happens, but if you look at the trials, the transcripts do it. They are extant, and, and uh, Miller used those trial transcripts to write the Crucible for a different purpose, but we're still looking for scapegoats anyway. And the fact that that for a thousand years before the Salem Witch Trials, as a matter of fact, I'd, I'd written that down out of a grand old book, and there had been association between mid, you know midwives and witch trials and harvests and the appearance of what was known as St. Anthony's Fire, which is you know the Christian appellation for you know, what we think of as different forms of ergotism, mm -hmm. you know. 857, 944, 957, 1039, 1089, 1096, 1129, 14th century, 15th, 16th, 17th century, when you've got uh, Europeans that are relying on rye, and the weather, you've know, got several ice ages, many ice ages have come through there, you know, right about the time of the Great Plague of the 14th century, they come and go and come and go. The 17th century was that period of the Maunder Minimum when sunspot activity was very, very low and the sun is not as hot. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, you have a tendency then 
you think of New England as being dreary or England being dreary, it gets drearier. <laughs> and so what what are the children who aren't going to public school in those days? What do you do? You help plant and you help harvest and you help with all the other things around there. And but there are fewer young men and there are fewer boys, the ages of Betty Paris, you know, her cousin Abigail, you know. The father is Reverend Samuel Paris, his slave from Barbados or someplace, Tituba, was a house slave, and she was also a playmate, you know, a kind of preschooler, teacher, you know, uh, and she was constantly badgered by these girls, you know, to tell stories. What, if any, role did the darkness of her skin play in this? The fact that she was a darker-skinned, enslaved woman. Well, but she was not an African. You know, she was a, a, a Western, I mean, she was a Caribbean Native American. And if you're in New England, you've been around Indians your okay. whole life. You know, so it's not like, you know, they're seeing someone who truly is evil and dark. But no. Was it more like that it was um, voodoo? I mean, was that seen as being or? Well, that's a part of it. If it's not Christian, I mean, it's, you're in, an infidel, obviously, you know, so that's another part of the problem. But that's that fascination when you're young. Mm-hmm. Of it's like, well, I gosh, I, one of my classmates is Jewish, or one of my Catholics is a Catholic. You know, it's like they're different. They're the other. You know, and that's a fascinating thing in its own right, in a way. But, but, Tituba, she said all the right things, did all the right things to implicate herself because they, the adults, want the children to name it. Why is this important? Why are you going to trust a child? That's one of the things. It was the burden of childhood, you know. Uh, certainly not just there, but in other cultures, you know. Your your children had to start reading when they were really young. Why you had to read the Bible? Mm-hmm. You're you're the the front line of defense against the evil ones who hide in the forest, and not just the Indians, but dark demonic spirits. You know, whether you're in Europe or not. So, kids then are thought of, as some would have it, uh, as miniature adults. That's an awful lot of responsibility for a kid. So you're saying that children, even at that young age, are thought of as a defense, as you say, against the darkness, against the dark spirits, against the sort of darker realms. Uh, Yeah, and against anything that would threaten their family and their community. Adults are counting on children to do what no adults should ever count on the children to do. I mean, that's, that's one of the emergent, later on, the emergence more of modernity in terms of attitudes towards a child, you know, that can you believe everything a child says? And there's, there's the rub, you know. If you do believe that children play this role, this responsibility in your community, and then you ask them to finger the person that started it all, you're going to believe what they say if you're inclined to. And when your parents and when other adult members of the community and your friends and other adolescents in the community become really concerned whether you're playmaking or not, after a while, you know, which is what some people have suggested, they were just they were just play acting. Maybe so. Maybe they were play acting because they had a little bit of this air got in their system, you know, who knows? But we know they had a lot of pressures on them as children. And when, when parents coddle their children in certain ways, 
uh, oh, you feel bad, don't you? Well, pretty soon, even if the kid doesn't feel bad, yeah, I do. I feel bad. You know. So what do the girls say? Titipa started it. You know. Then you got these a young male widower uh, minister who had two children because he had lost his wives. They said, well, he obviously killed his wives. You know, he's an evil man. And you've got uh, an old midwife who'd been living in a shack outside of town, you know, but they blamed her for spreading smallpox. They also identified Bridget Bishop, who I think was, I don't know what babe from Hollywood played her in one of those movies called The Crucible One, you know. You gotta have a good looking woman to wear that scarlet letter, you know, kind of stuff. And, and Bridget Bishop was a widow. Her husband, I believe, had owned an ale house. You know, we think of those people, you know, stovetop, stovepipe hat, black and white outfits, and they didn't drink bologna, they drank <laughs> all the time. And uh, so Bridget Bishop is blamed. Why? Some have said because she was a single woman. You're not supposed to have single women owning, you're not, if you're a woman, you're not supposed to own anything. Here's apparently an attractive woman, an available woman, who's got a business, and Farmer John, Farmer Smith decide to stop off at her place and have a little bit of ale, you know, maybe they think, hey, maybe. And the wives got jealous. Some of them did. So they said, Bridget Bishop is seducing my husband. And so you get one of them, one of the husbands saying, Bridget Bishop did appear and hover at the end of my bed with no clothes on and beckoned me to her. Now, did, who put that in his head? Uh. <laughs> different I guess dark forces here but you're also talking now thinking about like the darker side of human nature almost and it's just like that natural tendency I guess to yeah I mean it sounds like these young girls making these accusations picked out people who were in the community that were both vulnerable and others mm -hmm. you've mentioned people who were widows widowers they lived on the outskirts of town outsiders yeah I mean that's certainly one of the things that the governor Phipps, when he came back to town, you know, and finds 300 people chained up in the in the root cellars of New Englanders, you know, and that they'd already hung, you know, New Englanders not going to do what Europeans do. They're not going to be so wasteful as to burn in the middle of wintertime. They're not going to use firewood to burn witches. They're going to use a good piece of rope that can be used over and over. It's recycling. Whether it's the black arts or the dark side of human nature, we're really talking about the confluence of forces that's making some dark times and making people behave in some really, um, I don't know, unsavory ways. You know, whether you're, you're going, oh, let's all take poison because there's a little spaceship following this comet that's coming across Southern California. And if we all commit suicide, that comet will pick us up, the spaceship will pick us up, we'll be gone. There have always been millennials and Millerites in the United States in the 1830s and 40s that the, earth, the world is coming to. And there is some of that talk when things are so bad, millennials want things to get worse because that's further indication that the end of the world is at hand, you know, and that rapture will soon be upon you. So I'm not convinced that that community was millennialist, you know, by any means, but they sure had a, a truckload of problems. Phipps came back 
said, you guys have lost your mind. You've gone too far. Uh, you've allowed a bunch of bored, anxious young girls. Even the governor said that the adults were hoodwinked by adolescent girls. And that was, I mean, I, I guess that was my next question. If we're talking about all these different forces, all these different, you know, dark causes, I guess, like what causes the darkness to lighten, I guess. I mean, what causes all that to pass? Is it just the lone outside voice, the the person who has been outside and comes in and just says, man, things have gotten... Well, it, it seems like when things were dark, <clears throat> and it literally had been dark decades. You know, it had been cold, it had been wet, it was... If people are full of foreboding, you know, when you've got Indians, the potential of invasions, the loss of charter, the loss of future, uh... You've got, I mean, how could it get any worse? And the fact that you've already, you killed 19 people by hanging, and then you pressed another one to death accidentally by putting big, heavy, flat stones on him when he's prone on his back. You don't just keep adding them up until you suffocate. Uh, so 20 people, I guess, basically, you know, and they would have done more maybe, but... So what, what lifts if the darkness is so profound as it was when so many people were scared and you read those trial transcripts and that's that really whips it up even more. So it lasts through a dark, cold, cold winter. You know, it just makes everything worse. Human nature indeed, as Locke and others were writing about at the very time almost this was happening, why these girls, why children, would grow up and point a finger at people and say, this person cast a spell on me. So, as a child, I loved horror things. You know, I'm bored, unlike an awful lot of people. I'm bored with vampires. You know, I'm bored with zombies. It's just no longer any fun. I'd much rather have an alien, you know, that's got a mouth inside a mouth inside a mouth that comes out and plays space, you know. You know, like Mothra. Yeah. Mothra with the little teeny people. You know, it's like... It's, you know, if you were Japanese living in the 1950s, everything has to do with getting bombed by two nuclear weapons, you know, uh, or the fear of that happening again, you know. And, and in the 17th century, what could be worse? You know, you don't have to worry about nuclear weapons, but if your harvest fails, the late harvest, the descriptions of the rye grains themselves, the ends of the, the fronds, and the fishy kind of smell, and... And some of the, depending on the load, the, the fungal load that you got in, because crude air got is really toxic. You get enough of it in you, and it can just drive you nuts, literally. Uh, it can make you psychotic. And in the early 50s, in southern France, uh, there was a demand, and the, it was the French Bakers Union, National Union, they said, we got to have a bunch of rolls or something. They said, no, nah, we don't have enough stuff on him. we got some of this fishy-smelling flour. We'll just make it out of that. And they did. The whole village took off. Mm. This really happened. And people jumped out of windows, ran in front of cars. There were a bunch of people that were killed and a bunch of people that were thrown in insane asylums for the rest of their lives, wow. you know. And So 200 years later, yeah, it's still... yeah. So it, but it does happen. It does happen naturally. And if you are running through fields of 
of rye that's got this rust all over it, you could get something on you and get something in you, and it might actually make you uh, <clears throat> feel a little strange, act a little strange too. But it scared the crap out of a lot of people. Apparently, they didn't want to go back to church for a long time. You had to have a great awakening. So, well, thank you so much yeah, for taking the time much. to talk to us and to. I hope um, you don't believe this. transition now from the desire for enlightenment in order to control dark thoughts to a need for electric light to conquer dark spaces. The Chicago World's Fair of 1893 introduced thousands of visitors to the ways in which technology and humanity could be domesticated. People flocked to the White City at the World's Fair to marvel at the glory of industrial ingenuity and Victorian splendor. Meanwhile, in the crevices and corners of urban life, darkness remained. Join me, Dara, and Jacob as we descend into the depth of 19th century Chicago with Dr. Tammy Whitlock at the University of Kentucky. I'm Tammy Whitlock. I work at the lovely University of Kentucky. My interests are British history, but particularly the history of crime. And I actually come to the history of crime from nonviolent crimes. Uh, my uh, earlier research was on uh, shoplifting, <laughs> and I'm not sure exactly how shoplifting led to murder. <laughs> but I was about to ask. <laughs> I, I think it's from starting to teach crime in my classes. Of course, that's what they're always interested in. Uh, you know, a lady stealing a lace handkerchief in a department store, not too exciting for the average undergrad, but serial killers, Jack the Ripper, well, that's, you know, that's something else entirely. In 1893, they're celebrating the anniversary of, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And it's this sort of hats off to Europe and all of our, all of these, all of the great things about humanity with these kind of classical buildings and fancy facades, all of which were made of plaster mm -hmm. and came down after the fair. Henry Holmes comes into the picture. I, we last left him, I guess, in his trigamous marriages. Yes. Yes. Okay. Three so wives. he's born Mudgett, wisely does not go by that name. Uh, born in 1861. <laughs> so here he is. He's, he's a little round-faced gentleman. He has a really extensive mustache and a very fancy hat. He doesn't look like a serial killer, though. No, he doesn't. Not at all. He looks all. like a middle-class businessman. Very much so, so a businessman. Right. Yeah. So what happened? So what went wrong with... And that's another reason, too, that we read about serial killers. We want to know what creates them. What went wrong? In other words, how do... Let's see. How do I not become one or, you know, perhaps raise one? Uh, University of Michigan Medical School, he graduates from there in 1884. He gets married in 1878 for the first time. That marriage, of course, doesn't stick. And he has children with these women. I mean, so this guy's a dad and a doctor. But his dark side shows early. And he... He doesn't do what Burke and Hare did and kill people to sell them to medical schools, but he starts to figure out as someone who has access to corpses, because isn't this exactly what you guys would think, right? I have access to corpses. How can I make money off of it, of right? Of course, right. Okay. So, the, <laughs> so we are like, horrible human beings. <laughs> how, can I, how can I make some cash here? So he has access to these corpses. So what he would do is when the fresh corpses came in, he would mangle them. He would have taken out some fake insurance policy, created a fake identity, and then he would collect insurance 
on these people for accidents that never happened. So we've got a combination of um, macabre serial killer and identity theft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, in the 19th century, it was just a lot easier to make up identity. They don't even start taking photos of criminals till like the 1880s, 1890s. And they're like, hey, maybe we should take photos of these guys when they go in jail so they don't change their name every time. <laughs> and then he starts engaging in sort of shady business deals, bad real estate, promotional deals under the name H.H. Holmes. This is when he becomes H.H. Holmes, Dr. H.H. Holmes. In uh, January of 1887, he falls in love yet again. And bigamously marries uh, Myrna Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So part of the key is railways, subways, mass transit. They were able to travel. They could keep two different wives in two different cities and have one be unaware of the other. Now, he did file for a divorce after marrying her, but it never came through. So all of his marriages after that were bigamous. Uh, they had a daughter who later grew up and became a school teacher. His son, from his first marriage, became the city manager of Orlando, Florida. So his children were pretty normal. <laughs> Floridians. It's a world of laughter, a world of tears. It's a world of hopes and a world of kiss. There's so much that we share that it's time we're away. Okay, so how does H.H. Holmes get to the White City? Well, part of that answer is the way he got anywhere else in the, in the 19th century. Um, so his divorce is never finalized from Clara. He actually um, marries another woman, we mentioned uh, Georgiana Yoke, and she's in Denver. That's how he manages that. She's in Denver, Colorado, where he meets and marries her in January of 1894. So between his second illegal marriage and his third illegal marriage is where things get interesting. Always on the lookout for an easy way to make cash, Holmes notices in Chicago at a very prominent corner a drugstore goes up for sale uh, or is available and by available he happens to know that E.S. Holton who owns the drugstore has cancer he's on his deathbed and he's a doctor too and he's gonna have to sell out so the widow's trying to run the store so he finally convinces the widow to sell it's at the uh, corner of South Wallace and West 63rd Street uh, in the Inglewood neighborhood of Chicago he buys the property moves into the drugstore starts running it but the widow never sees the cash somehow this deal fell through, she never gets the money. And she starts to sue him in court. She mysteriously disappears uh, during that lawsuit. They never find her or find out what happened to her. So now, free of all debt, uh, Holmes purchases an even bigger property right across the street from the drugstore and builds a three-story castle. It covers one city block. Um, it's, you know, for its time, That's it was a fabulous big. building. A city block is, mm -hmm. is big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason it had to be so big is because on the bottom, it was just regular old offices. Uh -huh. Right? So everything was, was normal on the bottom. However, on the second and third floors, he essentially created a, a, a corpse factory. He 
was really dedicated to his craft. <laughs> he was dedicated to his. Can you tour he, it today? He was. Uh, it's. I uh, know. It was. No. It was torn down. Yeah. So uh, understandably. Yeah. After they, the stuff they found <laughs> in there. Used. Cody. There were a lot of creepy things. Well, uh, Lizzie, I, I will. I will take you to the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. I will, we will all go stay there. That will be a thing. No, we won't. Okay. Uh, you won't find me there. <laughs> Not at all. One of the guys that works on this uh, creepy thing with him is named Joseph Petzl, or Pitzel, sorry. Uh, Pitzel is a carpenter, but he's also a criminal. So he and Holmes actually become friends. So he builds this maze of rooms, stairs and doors. He takes advantage because he knew what was coming to Chicago. The World's Fair. There will be thousands of people, a lot of them rubes from the country, coming to Chicago. So the World's Fair, he knew all these vulnerable people from out of town who knew nothing about Chicago would be coming in. And so there was his castle ready and waiting for all these new customers. Uh, he especially, uh, when he saw single women at the fair, he would encourage them to come stay. He even romanced some of them, promised the marriage, and why not? He was already married to three people. What's what's to add one more to the party? So he's really sort of a hopeless romantic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is ironic, too, that he's drawing them into these dark corners and in his basement and all of this because... What was the biggest thing that was happening at the at the World Fair? At least one of the bigger things. Electricity. Electricity mm-hmm. and lights. The city is covered in lights. So you're getting rid of some of these most dark places in the city. And yet, this is where he's most successful. And I think it also speaks to um, a, even the architecture of darkness. And looking at it, as we're looking at this history of the dark and darkness, that he had this understanding of the relationship between space and architecture and darkness to sort of fulfill his dark fantasies. Right, and this is part of why Eric Larson chooses him for his famous book, Yes, uh, written in the early 2000s, is that you had the epitome of Western civilization and advancement and industrial civilization and brightness and culture, and then you have Holmes taking advantage of that to pr- commit some of the darkest acts you Isn't can this imagine. also one of the biggest fears of, I mean, of this era, is that you can get lost in the right. midst of like all these people. Right. So you do right. have all these um, thousands of people coming and in, and they brings, get lost, and they're just never found. Right. That brings me back to alienation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was, it was Dickens who once said that basically when you're in a crowd, you're completely lost in this sort of urban anonymity. Hold on, I want to get back to this, though, because this is, re- I'm like, <laughs> like, you know, chills up my spine over so here. It's th- perfectly light in here, and yet this is just Well, I, I think that the phenomenon of what's happening during the course of this interview and during the course of this broadcast is that we are becoming really enwrapped by this the, your storytelling. So scare us some more. Scare us some more. You know, and, that, and that's part of it, too. Um, we do love to be scared. It's a vicarious thrill, right? It's a lot better than being one of the victims of Henry Holmes. Um, so, what, so what did he do to these wayward young women that he's trying to keep from falling into an irrespectable position and he's going to take them to his he's castle? He's going to take them to his castle? Well, that's what's so odd. And this is what made him so successful. And we were talking about the importance of anonymity earlier. And in an urban mass setting, anonymity is such a protection. And one of the reasons these guys are so successful, I'm not saying that there weren't people who were psychologically serial killers before the 1880s, right? But it is in this time period that it's so hard to catch them 
because of how quickly you can move from one place to another, and if they are smart enough to kill strangers in anonymity so that no one can connect the murders to them. And this is where he was just so good. He also actually ran it as a hotel. There were rooms that were, quote, normal, right, if he had to show someone. So there were people who made it out. Can you imagine how these people felt that stayed at that hotel and then read about what had happened? And these are the rooms you didn't want to get. One in particular was a soundproof. He soundproofed it. Again, this is why he hires these many contractors. He could fill it with gas and kill all the occupants soundlessly, wordlessly, just gassing. And he kept an incinerator burning in the basement at all times so that he could, bodies that he didn't have time to deflush or whatever, he could just, they were gone. So this is the point in the broadcast where our listeners are now going around the house, turning checking the lights everything. on, <laughs> and checking the door locks. Yeah, so tell us, I mean, this is not just about killing, it's also a business venture. It's a business venture, just... and this is why he's interesting to me. He, to me, signifies this switch from the 1700s to the early 1800s when people were killed for fairly boring reasons. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, the usual, right? You know, there's that early case in New York where the respectable young man has a girlfriend and they think she's pregnant and she ends up in a well. There's, you know, there's that sort of thing. That's where spouses getting angry at each other, killing each other. And most anonymous, most stranger murder is, you know, somebody gets their head knocked in a dark alley because someone saw they were carrying some money. Right? Mm-hmm. Or there's a fraud or a scam involved. So there but was, this is systematic. This is, yeah. this is systematic, right. efficient killing. It's industrialized in a Industrialized, sense. yes. It's industrialized. And and it's made, you know, in his own way, he was a very intelligent man. Um, and he's already been desensitized in med school, right, to all these corpses and bodies. And what was interesting, too, is, again, but there does seem to be something in him that drives this. The fact that he does tend to target a lot of these young women, not just that they're more anonymous and vulnerable, but the fact that he marries these three women in succession, he he had some other issues going on there. Is there a certain like type of victim then? Or does he... Uh, what? Well, I can tell you the type of victim that, that finally gets him in the end. It's when he starts killing children. You know, the World's Fair, sad for him, sad for everybody, it's over. So there goes his, his, his money-making scheme. So he's got to find a new way to make money. Well, he's still got the castle, but he starts uh, getting back into what he'd done before, which was frauds. And so he starts out as a fraud. He continued to do insurance scams during this time period and real estate scams and money scams. The women downstairs, and you can imagine also being the woman like with the front desk at this place and finding this out afterwards, there were people he didn't kill, but he did make, he made all his employees, especially the female employees, take out life insurance policies with him as the benefactor. No one has any idea that this respectable drugstore owner doctor is systematically murdering people. <laughs> the one who starts to catch on is his wife, because... Pitzel's wife or... widow. She, okay. Well, she thinks she's still his wife. She thinks he's still alive because Holmes keeps writing, oh, you'll be reunited soon. He can't talk to you right now. He's not writing any letters. He's uh, a little tied up. Yeah. <laughs> he's a little tied up. This is a loose um, end, though. This is a, yeah. this this is is a what, big loose end. Yeah. yeah, this is a big loose end. And so, and again, that's where he gets kind of sloppy. And this is where the mistake was. People who knew him and had a connection to him through this building that they had done for him earlier. Uh, and this is when uh, a Philadelphia policeman gets involved. He was also arrested in Boston by Pinkerton agents. So oh, it involves nice. Pinkertons. Anything oh. that involves Pinkertons is always fun. That was in November of 1894. This is after 
after Miss Pitzel starts to think, mm, this is not so right. Well, the sad part is they had five children. And she she stays, takes her to the other two. Holmes, who is this incredibly charming person, supposedly, somehow convinces her that Joseph wants him to take care of three of the children. So she leaves Alice Nellie and Howard Pitzel in his care. And she starts to get scared, and this is when the police get involved. And that's when Holmes realizes that he's being chased. And that's when that's pretty much over for these kids. You'll be glad to know he was hanged in prison in Philadelphia in 1896. But what's kind of sad, and, and um, for all those people that he killed in Chicago, is he technically, they could convict him only of the bodies that they had. So he was convicted of the four killings. Joseph Pitzel and his three children, when in reality, he killed who knows how many people. Uh, there are estimates of 200 or more. Wow. Think of all the thousands of people that were at that fair. So to me, it's one of the most sort of chilling moments in urban history. And I think he, to me, is a lot more frightening character than even like a sort of sexual serial killer like Jack the Ripper, right, who kills these women. Well. From what I've heard, it sounds that he's he's really capitalizing on the um, vulnerabilities of Victorian ideology. He's capitalizing on this ability to function in a city and be anonymous. He's capitalizing on the class structure of packing a lot of vulnerable people into small places. Also, the progressive elements, the industry that's available, the machines right. that are becoming more popular, all of these ways to kind of, I mean, Henry Ford hasn't come out yet with his assembly line yet, assembly line yet, but I mean, this is what he's kind of He's capitalizing at. on the um, gender disparities mm -hmm. in um, yeah. Victorian, I mean, all of the sort of flaws in Victorian culture at that time, he capitalizes on all of it and uses it for what I would say is true evil. I mean, he's exhibiting his need for power by killing a variety of people until finally he's he's killing children. Right. So, But again, but but he it, does it for money. Yeah, is it just that he's greedy that, and no. he doesn't have a conscience? Is it, you know, what is evil? I kind of rest on the side of he's evil. I, I, I really think that there were, there were multiple things going on, but... If you can define anything as evil, you can define Henry Holmes as evil. And that's, that's why it's so yeah. dark, because yes. he's caught by thinking, he's probably not the only guy living at this time who's taking advantage of all these forces. Who else is out there? And I think that just kind of bleeds into, like, who's out there now? And this is the 1890s that we're yeah. talking about, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know what, maybe I'm not going to stay in that bed and breakfast that looks no like a castle next time. <laughs> <laughs> My question Make sure is, the door's open on both sides before you close the door. That's right. <laughs> I need you to go in first. <laughs> this is this is about as dark as I hope we get on this episode. <laughs> so look at what we've done this. now. Okay, thank you for taking yeah, us thank to you really very much. deep, dark, horrible places. But if students would also like to join us in these deep, dark, horrible places, what kind of classes do you teach where they can learn more about this? Uh, I teach a famous trials course. Not everything's quite this dark in that course. And I'm, I'm working on, and this is based on a talk I gave to the History Club a couple of years back, I'm working on a crimes course that deals in a much larger way with some of these issues and even looks maybe into the 20th century, things like the Leopoldo Loeb case uh, as a way for students. If you're interested in law, if you're interested in human nature, <laughs> uh, I think crime crime is a fascinating thing to learn. And what are some of the other classes that you teach, which obviously your personality is gonna show through in all those classes, 
And so what else do you teach? I, I teach uh, both halves of the history of Britain, uh, 202, 203. Uh, so I start at fire and I end with Elizabeth II. You start with, with fire? With fire, yes. Okay. It starts at fire. Well, we go a little past fire. We start at Stonehenge, but close enough, right? <laughs> we go a little past fire. I thought you were talking about a person, and now I'm going, oh my gosh, no, you're literally starting no, with no, fire. No, no, we start with fire. We start <laughs> well, I thought she was being very sort of symbolic. I start a fire in yeah. my class. No, no, no. Please don't start a fire in your class. No, no, we don't encourage that here. Uh, we have rules about that. So, uh, should we stop here? Yes, yeah. we have to. So, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Long story short, we'd like to thank Dr. Eric Christensen and Dr. Tammy Whitlock for talking with us today. Long Story Short is a joint production between the Department of History and the College of Arts and Sciences Hive. Today's episode was produced and hosted by Dara Vance and Cody Foster. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>